0: WLCC Brandon
1: Faith Talk Tampa online at let or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey.
2: The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded.
1: That is precisely, in principle, what's going through Herod's mind. Like Lady Macbeth, he suffers from a guilty conscience. And so he repeats over and over again that Jesus must be John, the one that I killed, because his conscience keeps accusing him of murdering this righteous man. God
2: gives a conscience to every person who is born. But as we will see in today's class on Herod the Guilty Man, man can sear his conscience by continually ignoring it. Welcome again to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel continues his in-depth look at this man who caused the murder of John the Baptist. Going against your conscience is the pathway to a hardened heart. This was certainly true in the life of Herod the Tetrarch. He no longer thought in terms of what was right and wrong, but only what was good for him and what people thought of him. Like so many in today's culture, this leads to a rejection of Christ and results in unsaved people mocking him. Open your Bibles, if you can, to Matthew chapter 14. Here's Pastor Steve with our study.
1: Now, I want you to notice something important about what Matthew has to say about Herod in verse 1. He writes, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. Matthew tells us, as he opens this passage, that at a certain time, which he calls and refers to at that time, Herod heard about Jesus. Now, what time is he talking about? When you, when you read a phrase like that in Scripture, you have to stop. You should stop and say, at that time. At what time? What time is he talking about? Well, when we put the parallel passages together, specifically Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, Mark in, partic- in particular tells us a great deal about this that Matthew leaves out. But when we, when we put this together, the parallel passages We understand that the time that that we're told about was the time that Jesus sent his apostles out into the villages and towns all around Galilee to do miracles, to proclaim the message of Christ and tell people about him and salvation. This was their first missionary journey. What Matthew actually has told us about out of order back in chapter 10. And so Matthew tells us now that it was at This time, the time when the apostles were traveling all over Galilee, ministering in Christ's name, doing miracles, preaching, and all that went into that, that Herod heard about Jesus. Now, that's very interesting because it may very well be the first time that Herod has heard about Jesus. I find that fascinating because Jesus has been ministering all over Galilee for about a year He's a well-known figure amongst the, the Jewish people in Galilee. And it may very well be that this is the first time Herod has ever heard about him. And that, and that would indicate how out of touch Herod was with the people that he ruled. And that fits perfectly with what we know from secular history about this man. History reveals specifically, as I said, Josephus, that Herod ruled over the Jewish, Jewish people, but he despised them. He was their ruler, but he actually hated the people. He had no interest in their religious affairs, even though he claimed to be a convert to Judaism. He was not a a Jew, he was not born a Jew. He claimed, though, to be a convert to Judaism, but the man had no time and no interest in spiritual matters. He was just like his father in the sense that he was preoccupied with luxurious living. We're told by Josephus that he resided in two palaces, one at a place called Machaerus on the shores of the Dead Sea, what would be now Jordan. That was a palace as well as a dungeon fortress, which was probably where John the Baptist was, was kept. It was certainly far removed from Christ's ministry in Galilee. All you need to do is is look on uh, a map, a Bible map, and usually in the back of your Bibles to see where the Dead Sea was and where Machaerus would have been located far removed from Christ's ministry. But the other palace wasn't an area of Galilee. It was in the city of Tiberias in Galilee. Tiberias is the place where those of you who have gone to Israel usually stay when you visit uh, Galilee. It It is the most developed city along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And that's either you have stayed there or you have stayed near Tiberius, but it is fascinating to note that the New Testament never records Jesus visiting Tiberius. Do you realize that? Now, he may have visited Tiberius, but it never records that. He probably did not visit that city, perhaps because he didn't want to arouse Herod's attention and cause a premature confrontation. However, even without visiting Tiberius, Matthew tells us that Herod now at last has heard. About Jesus. And you know what? What he heard deeply troubled him. Notice verse 2. And he said to his servants, actually, that word is boy, so it's his young male servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that's why miraculous powers are at work at him. What this means is that when Herod finally heard about Jesus and the miracles that he was doing, he mistakenly thought. That John the Baptist had risen from the dead and had returned in the person of Jesus. Now, where did Herod come up with such a a thought? He he wasn't that clever of a man. Where did he come up with such a thought? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark does. Let's turn to Mark chapter 6. And I would encourage you to keep your place in Mark's gospel, chapter 6, because we'll be there again. Mark chapter 6. Notice verses 14 and following. And King Herod, I told you, Mark refers to him as king, because that's what he wanted to be called, but he technically wasn't a king. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well-known, meaning Christ's name had become well-known, and the people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he's Elijah, and others were saying, he's a prophet, like one of the Prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, notice that he kept saying, not once, but repeatedly, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Now, what we're told is that the people of Galilee had begun to circulate various opinions about Jesus in order to explain his miracles. That most of them didn't say, you know, he does miracles, he must be the Messiah, he must be deity. But no, The people began to circulate various opinions about Jesus, untrue opinions. Some said perhaps he is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Now, what's interesting about that is in John chapter 10, verse 41, we're told specifically that John the Baptist did not do any miracles. Did you know that? John, you can look that up on your own, John 10, 41. John tells us, John the Apostle writes and says, John the Baptist Never did any miracles. However, in the people's minds, it must have been this, this way of thinking. Anyone who could rise from the dead, which they thought John did, even though he didn't. Anyone who could rise from the dead was certainly capable of doing miracles. So some were saying, he must be John the Baptist, come back from the dead. He's just calling himself Jesus. But there were others who said, no, he's not John the Baptist. We think he's Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, come back. Elijah was noted for doing miracles, so they must have put two and two together and said, well, who did the most miracles of all the prophets? Because not all the prophets did miracles. Elijah did, so he must be Elijah. Then there were others who said, no, no, he's not Elijah, but I do think he's one of the other prophets. Perhaps they said Jeremiah. Perhaps they said Isaiah. So there were several views of of Jesus circulating around Galilee, but the one that Herod chose to believe was that Jesus was John the Baptist, come back to life from the dead, and that thought terribly bothered him. Terribly bothered him. Why? Because as the story goes on to reveal, Herod had John murdered by cutting off his head and he's just feeling horrible in the sense of guilt. He's not, he's not feeling repentance, but he's feeling guilty about this. In fact, in Mark's gospel, we read that Herod was actually tormented by his guilt. As I read a moment ago, in Mark chapter 6, verse 16, we read, but when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has arisen. In other words, Herod kept repeating over and over and over again, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. And why did Herod keep saying these words? Because, folks, he was racked by a guilty conscience. He had murdered this holy man, and he was afraid that John had now returned to seek vengeance on him. And he's scared, and he's guilt-ridden, and he's tormented. This is very similar, if you're familiar with with Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare's play, it is similar in the sense that, that Lady Macbeth, out of a guilty conscience for encouraging her husband to murder people, repeatedly washes her hands, crying for the bloody spot to leave. That is precisely, in principle, What's well, going through Herod's mind. Like Lady Macbeth, he suffers from a guilty conscience, and so he repeats over and over again that Jesus must be John, the one that I killed, because his conscience keeps accusing him of murdering this righteous man. Now, folks, Herod's guilt and what Herod did with his guilt is a significant issue to understand, and it's not something we ought to just pass over easily, because it gives us important insight into the heart of hardened unbelief. You see, God has placed within every individual, and I mean every individual on the, uh, who has ever lived, regardless of their religious background and upbringing and education and status in life and financial situation, every human being has planted in their, in their inner being what the Bible refers to as a conscience. A conscience is essentially a moral monitor that when you do wrong, when you violate God's moral standards, it accuses you. You don't hear a voice in your mind, you just know it's wrong. Your conscience shouts at you, you've done wrong. However, just because somebody's conscience is bothering them, since they know that they've done wrong, they don't, they don't need someone to tell them they've done wrong. They know they've done wrong. It doesn't mean, though, that they're going to seek God's cure for a guilty conscience. And there is a cure. The only cure for a guilty conscience is divine forgiveness through repentance and faith in Christ, who died for sinners like us, and God's wrath was poured out on him so that it doesn't need to be poured out on us. Instead, though, a heart that is already hardened to the truth becomes even harder to the truth when it does nothing with a guilty conscience. Conscience is very important. You never want to violate your conscience and not do anything about it. And I'd like you to look at First Timothy. Keep your place in Matthew, but look at First Timothy chapter 4. Because the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in this letter to him about certain false teachers who had come into the church at Ephesus where Timothy was ministering who had actually calloused their conscience. It can be done. It's done by many people. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, Paul says, but the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. He means that some who profess to believe in Christ are going to leave orthodoxy. They, they never were saved to begin with, but they're going to leave orthodoxy and gravitate to cults and false religions, and untruths, and heresies, why? He said, why will this take place? Well, he goes on to explain, verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, he means that false teachers will lure them away, these men who, who are hypocrites, and they're liars, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, and then he describes them, these false teachers, as seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, What Paul is saying is these false teachers have desensitized their conscience by continually violating it. But it's not just false teachers who do that. Anyone can do that. So that you can come to a point in your life where all of your spiritual nerves have been destroyed and you no longer feel guilty. You are guilty, but you no longer feel guilty in the sense that your sin doesn't even bother you anymore. In other words, you can silence the accusations of your conscience by violating it so many times that it becomes callous, like, like hardened skin that no longer can feel pain, no longer feels anything. You no longer feel anything. You can sin and it just doesn't bother you. That is what happens, by the way, and this is an illustration of this too, those who are serial killers, the first time they murder... The second time, perhaps, even the third, fourth, they they feel remorse, they feel bad about it, but eventually, eventually their conscience stops bothering them. They no longer hear the shouts of their conscience. They become dull to it, callous, desensitized, so that when they kill a human being made in the image of God, to them it's like stepping on a bug. How do they get to that point? By constantly not listening to their conscience. So even if you're a believer, be very careful about your conscience. Don't do anything that violates your conscience. If you do, you need to repent immediately because what happens, and this is so often why people who know Christ are backslidden, because they, they compromise with small moral issues and think that it's really of no consequence, just a minor moral compromise. But if you do that enough, it leads to large moral compromises and eventually a calloused conscience. As someone said, you have to keep short accounts with God. Confess your sin, repent immediately. Otherwise, those seemingly little things can develop into big things. Well, and that's what happened with Herod, although this wasn't a little thing. But Herod's pattern is that he knew he was guilty of murdering an innocent man, but instead of turning to God for divine forgiveness, he chose to ignore the accusations of his guilty conscience. And where did it lead him spiritually? You know how Herod ended up? You you need to look at Luke chapter 23. This is very important. Luke chapter 23. This is a sad, sad commentary, tragic about this man. Now, it's a few years later, Herod has never met Jesus face to face. He has never seen him. But now the time has come for Jesus to stand before Herod. Jesus has been sent by Pilate to Herod because when Pilate realized that Herod was in charge, the Tetrarch, over Galilee, he said, oh, let him take care of the case. And he sent him to to Herod. He sent Jesus to Herod. Notice verse eight. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to notice, notice this, to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him. It means he questioned Jesus at some length. But he, Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently and Herod with his soldiers after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. As I said, this is now several years later. Herod, for the first time, meets Jesus face to face. And all he wants, this is how sad, this is how callous the man has become. All he wants out of Jesus is for the Lord to amuse him by performing a miracle before him. That's all. Herod had turned off the cries of a guilty conscience for so long that when Christ finally stood before him, his conscience was just dead, dead, dead instead of seeking God's forgiveness for his many many sins he just mocks Christ he treats him with contempt what a stunning illustration really of of a conscience that had become so callous and hardened to the truth that when the truth personified stood before him he just mocked him just mocked him now we need to learn something from the way Herod dealt with his guilty conscience or I should probably say he didn't deal with it. First of all, if you're not a Christian and your conscience is presently bothering you, then you need to do something about it now because tomorrow could be too late. Tomorrow could be too late. You run the risk of searing your conscience and no longer hearing God's conviction of your sins. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says, while you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. You know why? Because the possibility exists that you'll not hear it tomorrow. If you hear God's convicting voice through your conscience, then act on it today. Come to Christ today. Tomorrow may be too late. Now, you may not be able to articulate all of your sins, but you know you're a sinner. Everyone knows they're a sinner. Everyone. Now, some people will say, no, I don't don't know I'm a sinner. Well, they know they're a sinner. just not honest with themselves. Your conscience has told you all these years that you are a sinner over and over again. So you need to come to Christ while you are experiencing conviction because you may not always experience conviction. You're always guilty, but you may not know and feel that guilt. Secondly, if you are a believer, then understand why some people you witness to are as hard-hearted as they are because they didn't get this way overnight. They have hearts that have become desensitized to feelings of guilt that has accumulated over the years many, many repeated sins, yet a constant refusal to respond to the truth, just like Herod, and now their hearts are hard. You do not see this in a young child because it takes many years of constantly desensitizing your conscience to come to this point. That's why when you meet someone, you go, man, that person is so hard. Well, that didn't happen overnight. Didn't happen overnight. So understand, this is how unbelief behaves, and that's why witnessing runs into people like that when you, when you evangelize. So the first element of Herod's unbelief that we see in this passage is that he had a guilty conscience that refused to seek divine forgiveness. The second element of Herod's unbelief was that not only did he have a guilty conscience that refused to seek divine forgiveness, he also had a fear of people that dictated his sinful actions. He had a fear of people that dictated his behavior. His behavior, in other words, was not dictated by what was right or wrong or principle. It was by his fear of people. Notice verses 3 through 5. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. And with these verses, Matthew actually takes us back in time, taking us back in time in order to explain to us the event that led to John being arrested and then later killed. This is how John ended up in prison. He tells us that Herod had John arrested, bound in prison on account of his wife, whose name was Herodias. Now, notice in verse 3 that Matthew doesn't actually call her He identifies Herodias not as Herod's wife, but rather as the wife of his brother Philip. This is by design. He has purposely said that. Because in God's eyes, she was not his wife. I will call her his wife only to communicate to you. But the inspired writer calls her the wife of your brother Philip. That's significant. See, Herod was such an evil and shameless man, that he had actually married this woman, Herodias, even though she had first been married to his brother, actually his half-brother, named Philip. Listen to how New Testament scholar Leon Morris, in his very excellent commentary on Matthew, explains the tangled web of wickedness behind Herod and Herodias' relationship. I realize it's difficult to follow. It is so tangled you go, what? But let me read it to you, and then we'll highlight what you need to know about this. Speaking of Herodias, here's what Leon Morris has written. This lady was a granddaughter of Herod the Great, being the daughter of his son, Aristobulus. She married her uncle, Herod Philip, who was half-brother to Herod Antipas. That's the Herod of the story. Herod Philip and Herodias had a daughter, Salome. Herod Antipas married a Nabataean princess, the daughter of King Aratas, but he and Herodias fell in love. They agreed to marry, and Herodias left Herod's half-brother, Herod Philip, and then Leon Morris adds, as Matthew says, she was the wife of his brother Philip. She was also his niece. The daughter of Aratas got wind of what was happening and fled to her father, who promptly went to war with Herod and defeated him, which provoked Roman intervention. It was a tangled and complex situation, but what is clear is that the marriage of Herod Antipas and Herodias was contrary to Old Testament law. That would be Leviticus 18, verse 16, and Leviticus 20, verse 21. Now, you got all that, right? I know it's confusing. I know the story is not easy to follow, but what you need to understand is simply this, that in marrying Herod, in marrying his brother's wife, who was also his niece, It was incestuous, it was adulterous, and it was a direct violation of the Old Testament law. No wonder this man, Herod, had a guilty conscience. He'd been sinning against the light for years. He knew this was wrong. He said he was a convert to Judaism, so not only would his conscience tell him it's wrong, but he should have known something enough of the Old Testament to know it's wrong. He just had a long history of sinning against the light.
2: As Herod continued to sin against his own conscience, he grew more and more hard-hearted. In our next and last lesson on Herod, we will see the final results of his actions. You can listen to this class session again by going to our website, versebyverseradio.org. There are many classes you can download free of charge. While there, you may wish to donate to the ministry of Verse by Verse. Click on the Support Us tab and then scroll down to the Donate button. You can give by credit card or PayPal. When you send a contribution to verse by verse, we will send you a copy of the book, Timeless Truths from a Faithful Shepherd. We hope you will take advantage of this offer, which will expire shortly. The book will be a resource of growth in your Christian walk with the Lord. Some of Steve's best sermons are contained within the 207 pages of this paperback volume. If you would like to mail a contribution, the address is Verse by Verse Ministries, P.O. Box 5884, Clearwater, Florida 33758. The book will be sent for a gift of any size.